At Journey Beyond Divorce, we understand that navigating through the emotional tsunami of separation and divorce is one of the hardest journeys you'll take. And we know that once the initial fear and pain begins to pass, a whole new storm of confusion, uncertainty, and self-doubt can surface. Journey Beyond Divorce can help you identify and clarify where you're feeling stuck and what steps you need to move forward, even if they're just baby steps. We guide you with practical, tangible support that you can start implementing right away. Our team of experienced divorce coaches is ready to help you. Listen through the show because we have a gift just for you. It'll help you navigate your divorce with more calm and confidence. You're listening to the Journey Beyond Divorce podcast with Karen McMahon. We invite you into a journey of healing and personal transformation that will radically change your divorce experience. Heal your heart while refining your character and enable you to be effective and feel empowered as you navigate the practical and emotional challenges of divorce. Um, it's always easier to get information. Let, let me see how I want to put this. When you think you are going to be looking at a divorce, sometimes it makes sense to gather documents and information ahead of time. Um, and if you can, often people will come to me and have me put it all together for them and see what it looks like before they even meet the attorney just so that they start to get a handle on the finances in total and if any of their hunches are true or not. Um, so you can always get more information. Once the cat's out of the bag, often it's a lot harder because things get locked down, passwords get changed, you know, mailboxes change. So sometimes people are clever when they start to look at this before the divorce. Welcome to the High Net Worth Divorce Playbook where we introduce you to the experts who can inform, guide, and support you through the unique complexities of your divorce. Throughout this series, you will hear from the best of the best on topics including the art of negotiating, how to divide and distribute complex assets, and what you need to know about splitting pensions, what your attorney doesn't know and how that can hurt you, how to find hidden assets, and the key to protecting you and your family's financial future. Welcome back, everyone. In the complex world of high net worth divorce, there's often the need for a forensic accountant who helps to find hidden assets or missing money, which is considered divorce fraud. Today's episode focuses on the red flags that can help you ascertain whether or not you need a forensic accountant, what the process looks like should you hire one, how to choose the right forensic accountant, and the role you will play in the process. Today's guest is Peggy Tracy. She's the sole owner of Priority Planning LLC, a tax preparation and financial services practice since 1986. She added her divorce planning business in 2003 and is a certified financial planner, certified divorce financial analyst, and certified fraud examiner. Although Peggy has retired from divorce and trial work, today we get the incredible benefit of her wisdom and advice based on her many years experience. Welcome, Peggy. Thank you, Karen. 
It is so nice to have you with me. And I'm really excited about sharing all of the um, information that you have to uh, provide to our listeners. And I think that a nice way to start, Peggy, would be if you could just describe what uh, what a forensic accountant is, like the, just the basics of what a forensic accountant is and does. Okay, I'd love to do that, Karen. A forensic accountant is not your tax preparer. Um, they are, they're a different type of person. Forensic accountants love to put jigsaw puzzles together. We love to do crossword puzzles. There's something about balance in life where pluses and minuses have to equal that attract people to being a forensic accountant. Um, in divorces, forensic accountants actually play three pretty important roles. Um, the first one is that they're the financial investigator, um, and they really are responsible for uncovering any, any income or assets or anything that might not be disclosed. Um, they also might be an expert witness at trial um, if it went into litigation, and sometimes they simply act as an advisor or a consultant to the attorney in, in tax-related tax manners and accounting-related manners. Beautiful. So... The first question that comes to mind is how would our listeners ascertain whether or not they need a forensic accountant in their divorce, during their divorce? Oh, that's an excellent idea. The forensic accountant, we almost have to think of them as an investigator. So if you believe that there are assets or income in your in your marriage that are either hidden or missing or you can kind of sense a trail of something going on um, that might be nefarious that's when that's when you might want to seek out the uh, advice of a forensic accountant everything leaves a trail whether it's a paper trail or an electronic trail and forensic accountants are trained and skillfully will pick up those trails and try to bring them all together Beautiful. So one of the things that comes to mind for me is I have a client who has uh, uh, a family business. Um, so so if there's if one party has a business, even if you're not concerned about, as you say, nefarious activity, uh, it is simply having um, a business or a business of a certain size worthy of including a forensic accountant or, or no? The, the answer could be yes or no, depending on the business and the situation involved. In many cases, yes, there are, there, there are instances of corporate or business assets that are missing and hidden. Um, I once had a case where an attorney asked the other client, the spouse, to spend down, quote unquote, all the assets in the business so that there was no cash there. And so he bought inventory for a year and bought all new equipment and things just to spite the other party. So oftentimes, just going through business assets and income is essential in the divorce. And yet what I think I'm hearing is if you're not concerned about uh, fraud or hidden assets, in a case of a, a small business, a family business, it would be more of a business evaluator who would do it. Like, can, can you just, and I know we didn't talk about this beforehand, but it's coming to mind. What's the difference between hiring a business evaluator and hiring a forensic accountant? Oh, Karen, that is an excellent question. 
a business valuation analyst will actually give you a, a, a sum total or a dollar figure for the value of that business. So when the assets in the marriage are being um, distributed equitably, we have a good solid number based on scientific methods in order to take that asset and split it up equitably. A forensic accountant is really, as you said, only used when you think that there are there's money that might be flowing through the business to, um, to other places or that you notice that there are transfers. There has to be some reason why you would want to hire somebody. So for, when you're dealing with forensics, you're really, there's, there's some evidence or fear of or concern about um, uh, someone's doing something out of integrity. Something's being hidden or there's fraud or there's something that requires a closer look, a deeper dive. That's correct. And often the, the evidence might come in the form of um, something from the government where you might notice that there, let's say, is an IRS letter um, written out on that particular business, or it might come from another government agency. Um, it could be that somebody hasn't been paying their sales tax, um, but normally there's going to be some sort of correspondence from somebody um, if there is something that needs to be looked at. Okay, so when we talk about parameters and red flags, the, the tax returns, the, the noticing of overspending or or that kind of a thing. It's, uh, so, so let's dive in a little bit more to um, what fraud is and how you um, investigate it. Okay, well, the, uh, the actual law definition of fraud is pretty simple. Um, and fraud is really simply defined as an intentional act to deceive and remove something of value from someone. So let me say that again. It's an intentional act to deceive and remove something of value from someone. So there has to be intent there to deceive. Um, there's something known as the fraud triangle, where there are three conditions that pretty much need to be met in order for any kind of fraud to occur. Um, and one of them is you need to have the opportunity to commit the fraud. Um, you also need to have a motive, a reason why you're doing it. And then you have to be able to rationalize it. And once all three of those line up in somebody's mind, it kind of gives them the go-ahead to, to commit the fraud. Oh, that's, that really clarifies it a lot. That's great. And so that's the definition of fraud. Uh, from there, uh, do you look for red flags? And what do those look like? We do look for red flags. Red flags are often known as circumstantial evidence. And when you hear someone talk about circumstantial evidence, it's evidence that's related to the senses. They feel something, you know, something seems amiss. Um, they just, you know, somebody's habits are changing. Um, they get a sense that someone is more secretive than they were before. Um, because if you're doing something that you shouldn't be doing, you are going to be more secretive. They're going to catch people in lies. Um, they're going to look at habits that people have and see if they've made lifestyle changes. The old joke is that if somebody's having an affair right away, they start going to the gym. And it could be a change in habit for a lot of people who were never gym goers to begin with. Right. So you start to notice little things just and you start to get a sense that something may be amiss. 
And and that's and as you're speaking to our listeners, uh, would you be recommending that they look out for those things? Yes, and it's almost as if it you can't convict somebody on one of those things. You, it, it's a series of things that start to build and build and build, and at some point you run into direct evidence, and that's when your hunches start to come true or not, depending on what you see based on, you know, what you see with the bank statements and the credit cards and things that might support your thought process. Yeah. So I just, I'm just going to pause here and just speak to our listeners. So there's, there's two sides to this coin. On the one hand, um, you may doubt yourself. So you may see your spouse going to the gym or different things that seem odd, but they're not so tangible. And so you, you may doubt yourself. They may be really good at explaining things away that increase the doubt. And so um, I'm hearing Peggy tell us that those are red flags worthy of talking to your attorney about and at least using your attorney as a sounding board to see whether or not uh, those circumstances are worthy of a deeper dive. The flip side of the coin, right, and as you guys have been listening to us talk um, throughout the, se- the various series, is careful what your perspective is, because you could also talk yourself into just about anything. And so the second thing that Peggy said that I really like is it's not a one-time thing. He got a gym membership. He must be hiding things. And so it's it's that that uh, consistency or that um, more than one opportunity where you see something that looks like a red flag. And so I, I want to caution you to both don't stick your head in the sand and don't be too quick to act. And so it's almost like a fine line that you're walking when it comes to circumstantial evidence, isn't it, Peggy? Uh, Yes, it is. And often people want to convict, as I said, on just the basic circumstantial evidence, and that is never good. We really need to get that direct tie to financial damages. You know, is this person gambling? Um, Have you noticed that they, you know, at night, instead of going um, to one place there, you find them at the casino? I mean, it, it all depends. Each family is different and each set of red flags is different, but they all have something in common where your, your, your hunches start to go up. Beautiful. So, um, so that's the red flags. Uh, I know you talked to me about wanting to share with our listeners how to prepare themselves for finding fraud. What did you mean by that? Well, what's important is uh, I have found that in some marriages, people are, uh, some spouses are told by their other spouse for many, many years that they've hidden money. You know, I have a million dollars. You're never going to find it. Um, Every family dynamic when it comes to money is different. So in order to see this process to its conclusion, you have to be prepared to find out that perhaps there's been a betrayal involved. Um, in your marriage. And this is the financial damages that are coming forth because of the betrayal. So there's a lot of, it's not just a financial issue here we're talking about. It's an all over your life issue where once you open up this can of worms or this tube of toothpaste, it's not going back in. And you have got to, at that point, confront what's ahead of you. You know, and I'm just going to say, it's, I'm just, that's, that's hitting me in my heart because here we have our listeners, they're already 
in this chaotic transition, this, this overwhelming, this oftentimes devastating transition of divorce. And what I hear you saying is, is if you see the circumstantial evidence and your attorney says, yes, we should explore further, um, you, the listener, you need to absolutely positively make sure that you have the support that you need, um, the emotional support um, to be prepared for whatever is unearthed in that uh, investigation. And so whether you're uh, speaking with a therapist or you're working with someone like me and my team, a divorce coach, that um, that that you want to have the support that you need because a lot of different things can come up and it could be like a very large tidal wave on top of a tsunami that you're already in the middle of. You're exactly right. I had one client who came to me. Um, her, her teenage daughter had asked her the other day if, her, if their dad was on drugs. Um, and her mother, of course, said, of course not. What would even give you that idea? And she said, he's had very erratic behavior for the last couple of years. I, I don't know. I just have that feeling. Here we go again. It's that feeling. So she brought all their paperwork to me, all their bank accounts and credit cards. And I looked at things that she'd been looking at for quite a while, but I put them in a spreadsheet for her so that the information that she was looking at, I pulled out various aspects of it. And what I found was that every other day he was spending $200 in cash withdrawals, no matter where he was in the world for three years. And all I had to do was lay that out in front of her and she, it all clicked into place. And she said, I'll bet he's, this looks like he's on drugs. So she did have to, at that point, prepare herself for finding something out that she didn't want to, she didn't even want to be a part of. And yes, she did confront him. They did work it out. He went into rehab um, and they did live happily ever after. But it was that analysis of taking the information and showing it to her in a way that was relevant or that made sense for their particular situation that led her to understand those hunches were right. That's such a great story. I mean, it's nice that it has a happy ending. Yeah. But, but, but even the how you got there and that, you know, it was her daughter's gut sense and then she followed up with it. And then it also really speaks to what that, what your skill of forensic does and what um, being able to pull out the right data and see it laid out in a certain way, the picture that you're able to mm-hmm. present, which is beautiful. Um, so, so how does one know uh, and I, I asked this question, but I'm kind of asking it differently. Um, how do you know if it's worth investigating? So, so let's say you, you have a gut sense. How do you go from that to knowing whether or not it's worth whatever the investment is in your services to actually go forward? And that's an excellent question. I get that a lot. Um, if you are currently working with an attorney, it would be a team decision on whether the attorney and the client together think that there's enough to move forward. Um, By then, the attorney would have already um, probably have done some basic forensic work themselves, looked at the tax returns, looked at the story that the client was presenting to them in terms of the bad behavior, um, and then would start to make some decisions about whether they think that it's, it's, there's enough there to go forward. It's a team decision. Right. And, and while I know that, 
this series is specifically um, uh, supporting the, the needs and the situation of high net worth individuals. I've had over the last 10 years people who um, didn't have that much money and it came down to, I've had numerous forensic people say, what you're going to find or save is barely what you're, I'm going to charge you. And so can you just, for those who are listening who don't fall into the high net category, just speak to that a little bit? Sure. And I'm going to say that a forensic accountant, or even I would start with your tax preparer. If you are not conversant and, and really relevant um, in your own financial information, education is your first step. You're going to want to talk to your financial advisor if you have one. You're going to want to talk to your tax preparer. And you're going to want to start to get familiar with all of these various types of documents um, before you begin to look at something else. Um, so education is key. Even as a, when I'm doing forensic work, as I'm investigating, I'm making sure I'm educating the client at the same time. Often, and I will say often, people will come in here with something that they think is nefarious and it turns out to be just a regular sale of real estate or something, but they found this big check and they go out on a limb with this big check, not understanding that it was legitimate. So yeah. there, there, are, there are ways to educate people to say, no, this is a legitimate transaction. This other one is not. And if you have an accountant, that's a great, or a financial planner, like those people who are financially savvy, we always say that that's a great place to start to just, just to get the ABCs, you know, just to get the basics and understand um, what's going on with your finances. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, um, what's the difference between, um, fraud and hidden money, or is hidden money uh, a subcategory of fraud? Can you just speak to that a little bit? I can. We already went over the fact, we said that fraud is an intentional act to deceive people. So deception is the cornerstone of fraud. I mean, it all relies on deceiving people, which means you have to start to lie. And then when you lie to somebody, you have to lie to cover up that lie. And then you have to lie again, and then you're lying to somebody else. And at some point, what happens is those lies start to you know, come upon each other. Now, here's the point. I think that in, in marriages, there's a lot of dissipation that can occur. Dissipation is a particular type of fraud only in marriages. Um, and dissipation really is talking about wasting marital money. So for instance, one of my first cases, a, a client, the, the, her spouse worked at a bank and he forged her signature on an equity line of credit of $100,000 against their home. And she did not know, so she was deceived and he spent all the money gambling. So then the bank came to her for some, some payments and she didn't even know what they were talking about, um, which is when she decided to get divorced from this gentleman. Um, but that's a type of mortgage fraud. I mean, so something like that, that's actually someone incurring more debt as opposed to hiding assets. He was actually incurring debt. And that's what you're referring to as dissipation. That's correct. Dissipation can be money that's spent on uh, affairs outside of the marriage, gambling. Uh, often it could be spend a spendaholics. I had one client who his wife had put them $40,000 in debt and she hid it from him. 
And every time he would come home, she'd have all the tags off the new clothes and all that stuff. And, and he found the credit card slips. So he, he talked to her about it. They went to therapy. It won't happen again. Well, it happened again. And this time they, he made her pay it off with her own money. And then it happened again. And he divorced her. And he said, I can't have any stability in this relationship with the way you spend money. So that was right. considered dissipation. Yeah. And it's actually just one more form of addiction, right? So whether you're gambling or you're doing drugs or you're a shopaholic or whatever holic you are. Right. That's and right. so that does have a severe, um, causes a f severe breakdown in trust and relationship. So let's, let's, let's turn to hidden money because okay. I think that that's such a big one. It is a big one. And it's, it's, it's honey, money is either hidden or it's missing. And when money is hidden, there's a trail to find it. You can actually look at a bank statement. You can see the transfer out of the account. You can find the account it went to. And eventually you could piece through the entire trail to get to where the money is. A missing money, on the other hand, is gone. And that's the one we're talking about here with gambling, uh, you know, spending, all of that. The money is gone. It's not going to come back. But hidden money, I, I had one case where the, the, the spouse was putting away I guess the limit was 3000 a quarter. So he would go to a currency exchange with some extra money from an extra job his wife didn't know he had. And he'd put away $2,999 every quarter into this life insurance product that nobody even knew he had because he was taking cash there and he was below a certain limit. So what happened when we actually found out about this, it turned out he had over $300,000 of cash value in this life insurance policy that he'd been banking away all these years, 3,000 a quarter for himself in cash. Oh, wow. um, and once we found one receipt from the currency exchange, we were able to put it all together. Sometimes it's just that one receipt in a pile of papers, someone might, you might find somebody has a new account that opened up or we might find somebody omitting information. And when you omit something, that's almost always a sense of guilt because they're not giving you the full transparent picture. Right. And, and I think that word is key, right? Like if, if, if a couple is getting divorced and there's full transparency, there really shouldn't be a need for you, Peggy, should there? Absolutely. You're right. <laughs> yeah. So, so, so that's, that's, that's a, that's a positive red flag. If you feel like there's really full transparency. Calming the chaos of divorce begins with quieting your mind and getting clear on what you want and how to get it. That's why we created the divorce survival kit. It's an easy to digest guide with five essential tips that help transform your suffering into valuable insights and your confusion into effective action. So go to DivorceRecoveryLifeline.com and grab your Divorce Survival Kit today. So you said that some fraud is hidden money, some fraud is missing money. Let's talk a little bit, unless there's anything you want to add, I was thinking it would be really helpful to understand the, the process of forensic. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, so, so um, so I talked to my attorney, and we both agree there's enough concern to hire a forensic accountant. What happens next? 
Okay. The process really begins with the client looking locally for some help with their case. So I have found that it really doesn't do the client much justice to find experts that are out of state unless you have, you know, you're mega wealthy. That's a different story. But even in a high net worth case, you're always better to seek out local experts who know the judges in your area have, have you know, taken trials in your courts, um, who know the attorneys. And often there's a, a network in your local area. Now, if you live in a smaller town or a more rural area, your, your best bet is to go to the next biggest city. Um, so I had somebody who lived in Fargo and we couldn't find them any. We had to go to Minneapolis to find someone who really was, was good for them. But you want to be as local as possible. And then you're going to meet with that person and start to get a sense from the forensic accountant if there is anything here. So Peggy, let's say before we go further, uh, what, what is your recommendation to the listener as the client if their attorney recommends a forensic, what is their role in discerning whether or not that's the right forensic, if there is one at all? Well, to me, it's all about the chemistry and understanding that there has to be chemistry between you and your attorney, the, the client and the attorney. And there also has to be, even though it's a working relationship, you need to be able to feel heard by that professional and you need to be able to feel respected by that professional and that that professional is working for you. Um, you're paying that person. So could you give us um, a handful, two, three, a few questions that you would recommend our listeners um, ask when talking to a forensic accountant to see if, like, what are we looking for? Okay. You're looking for somebody who has experience in the court system because many of these cases involving dissipation and fraud do go to trial. And you're looking for somebody who can provide a solid written report of their findings. So let me ask you this, what's interesting, and of course this is where we're, um, we're drilling down a little bit deeper. Um, I always say to my clients, whatever you do, do not hire an attorney who's a general attorney who does a little matrimonial. Like, like you want to hire a matrimonial attorney. You want them to know the players, the judges. You want them to, you know, eat, breathe, live matrimonial law. In forensics, is it the same thing? Um, when you say someone who has experience in the court system and written reports, do you guys specialize in uh, either divorce or a certain type of forensic, or that's not what we're looking for? Okay, that's an excellent question. Forensic accounting is the same whether you're using it in divorce or you're using it in estate planning. For instance, I've had clients come to me who believe that some of the other heirs and beneficiaries of estates were stealing money from the estate. So I was able to go in and find out that, yes, they were using the estate money for their own personal expenses, college tuition, et cetera. And then they filed a lawsuit and got the money back. So for you, for the forensic accountant, it doesn't, the circumstance of divorce is, is, is not primary. It's the understanding of how to see red flags and follow the trail. So 
if you're saying if if I'm going to talk to a forensic accountant because my attorney and I have agreed that I should hire one, we should hire one. I'm looking to see what his or her depth of experience is, um, uh, their experience in court specifically, so testifying. And then you said, in terms of the written report, what's the question you would ask? You would ask to see copies of prior reports. You would ask to get a sense of what, I mean, we have sample reports we give out where all the names and everything are erased. Mm -hmm. It's important to get a sense of the quality of the work as well. Quantity here is not the, not the goal. <laughs> um, the goal is quality. And there are, oh. large, there are some large forensic accounting firms out that do fabulous work. There are some boutique firms out there and there are individual sole proprietors as well. And, and, and I want to say to you who, who's listening in, just as we've advised you in the past to be very careful about the relationship of, with your divorce attorney, like make sure you feel heard and listened to, that they answer your questions, that you don't feel bullied, um, that you don't feel like they're talking over your head and you feel too silly or stupid to ask a question again. I would say the same, all those same rules apply with any professional that you're hiring is you want to feel respected and heard that that person has the patience to um, go at your pace and walk you through so that you understand because you're the boss, you're paying the bill. Would you agree with that, Peggy? Totally. Mm -hmm. You're the boss. Okay, so uh, back to the process. Um, first thing is you hire a forensic. Um, what's, so, so we hire, we hire you, okay. Peggy. What's the next step? Okay, the next step is the most exciting one for me. I try to see how involved I can get my client into the process with me. Um, and you might find that to be unusual, but what I find is that um, if clients go through, clients can go through an empowerment surge if we approach this in the right way and I, I allow them to help me gather direct evidence, the more work the client does for, for some clients, it's often therapeutic for them to actually dig in deep and really get the aha moments that they're looking for. Um, other than that, I then take over. We start to look at perhaps setting up a schedule of what we need to do. Um, we have to get all the documents in, all the subpoenas have to come in. Um, and then I can sit down and put all the numbers together. So it's like a discovery phase that you go through. Very much so. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, um, okay, so so we get all of the documents in, and this is where you start doing your crossword puzzle thing and you're digging, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, because we want to start to look at um, places where we we know we're going to find perhaps irregularities, we might find some unusual transactions. We might be looking for cash withdrawals, wire transfers, um, credit card receipts, um, credit reports, and tax returns. And by getting gathering all of those different documents, either in paper or electronically, we can then triangulate all the various pieces together. And that will pretty much tell me if money is hidden or missing. So you connect all of that, those dots and you actually have a picture. Yes. Beautiful. So you have a picture, let's say for the sake of this example, um, 
what you see is that, yes, in fact, there is some form of fraud. What's the next step? The next step is to talk to the attorney about it. Uh, uh, sad to say, in a lot of cases I've worked on, unless the dissipation or the marital fraud is so egregious that it can't be overlooked, that often it's used as leverage or it's used as a bargaining point in the equitable settlement. It's not even that the, that the judges often see the work that I do. It's presented to the opposing counsel and then they would all together decide what to, what to do about it. So oftentimes it's used as leverage. Okay, there's a truck outside. This happened to me twice. There's a truck outside my window. So we're just gonna, you did hear it. Okay. Yeah. So I'm going to ask you to, um, and that's such an important piece. I actually, and I know they're going to take a minute here. So they're going to just make a racket for a couple of seconds. Oh, there they go. I have to remember sanitation day is not the best day to do these. Um, okay. We're going to start that piece again. Okay. Okay. That was a good one. I hope I remember it. <laughs> so, Peggy, you've now found out for the Peggy, for the sake of our example here, let's say you've found fraud. Right? You connected the dots and it's like, yep, there is definitely fraud. Can you walk us through what the next step is? Sure, I can. Uh, normally, I would then take my findings straight straight to the attorney and we would start to discuss it before I do any write-up at all. It would make, I would make sure that I was on the right track, that we weren't missing anything. Um, what I have found is that unless the marital dissipation or the marital fraud is truly egregious, oftentimes it doesn't make it all the way to the trial. Um, what, it does, what it is used for is as leverage in the equitable settlement or as a bargaining chip um, or as a measure of character against somebody to say, even though you, you aren't going to include all of this, here's how this person has acted. Um, so oftentimes it's a powerful piece within the entire settlement itself. And, and I think it's so important that you hear that as the listener. And so I would imagine obviously what egregious is, is gonna be based on the entire um, all of the marital assets and then what percentage of this fraud or hidden money that, that we're dealing with. And so if I'm hearing you correctly, you're using the word often, not sometimes, that often, unless it's egregious, a significant portion, that rather than it being a... a that rather than it being uh, tipping the balance sheet, it becomes leverage and uh, uh, an issue of character, which, which will play out in the final settlement, but not dollar for dollar so much. Correct. Mm -hmm. You hit it right on the button. Did I say that well? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so... Where does the report come in? If the attorney believes we have a case going forward that is trial worthy, 
we will I will then proceed on to I would proceed on to report writing at that point and I would gather all of my spreadsheets and everything that I've designed and I would do a four page narrative and put it all together and in the olden days we used to have binders now it's all just done electronically um, but then it would be given to the opposing council and that's when they would have to start to discuss it and put it in as part of their negotiation. So if they don't consider, if you and the attorney, if it's not egregious enough, uh, you're not writing a report. So my first thought is, well, then what happens? How did, how did they, how does my attorney use that as leverage without the report? Well, it might be that the case was not strong enough to begin with to even warrant a report, would be my thought, that there just wasn't enough there. So do you write a report for the use of leverage and character, even if it's not egregious enough to go to trial? No, but I will have spreadsheets and I will have perhaps shown evidence of all of the gambling and I will have evidence of all of the money spent on, on an affair. Um, and then we'll decide, is it enough or not? Is so it beautiful. And what I, I wanted the listener to hear that. So at the end of this process, you may have something that's so egregious that you get the report and the negotiation goes from there. You may have evidence that's significant enough to use the leverage or to, um, to, uh, to unearth the true character of your soon-to-be ex that is going to help you in negotiation. So there's a couple of different possibilities at the tail end of this process is what I'm hearing. You're hearing correctly. Mm -hmm. And we never know until we get to the end what it's going to be. And, you know, you said something to me when we were chatting offline um, about um, sometimes you find criminal activity. So before we go on, can, where does that piece come into play? That is often, that's a whole nother level above divorce law, where perhaps there are some attorneys who focus on family and criminal law together, because even criminals get divorced. <laughs> when you think of people in jail and prison, a lot of them are married. So, uh, so oftentimes in, in the middle of an investigation, in the middle of all the paperwork and things, we may find things like tax evasion, or I might find something that is worthy of a criminal, um, criminal look. Often the Department of Justice might be involved. Um, there could be some white collar crime going on. Um, and can you just, this might be unfair to ask, but could you put a percentage on like your, your just your experience with how often you unearth criminal activity? Like, are we talking about 5% of the time, 25% of the time, or is that an unfair question? No, I'd say it's relatively small, small. Um, but the ones that you do get, you remember. <laughs> right. And I'm saying that because I think we have those, those listening have like enough fear and enough on yeah, their plate yeah. that I don't want you to hear the word criminal activity and think, oh, that's why she told me to prepare in the beginning. Like you're preparing for anything. It's really going to be few and far between yeah. where you're going to find that you're not only dealing with someone who has been fraudulent with you, but who's then going to have um, have a, a criminal case to deal with on the other side of it. Correct. And I'll give you an example of that. A friend of mine many, many years ago had married a very wealthy millionaire um, and we were all like jealous. <laughs> 
And it turned out every year he asked her to file her return separately from his. And she only had a little tiny income. Uh, and so every year she'd come to have her taxes done. And we were always questioning, or why are you just reporting this on your own? Well, it turned out he turned out to be a pretty good man, even though he was a criminal and did go to jail. Because by, by having her file her own tax return, he was protecting her from what he was doing, which was money laundering, going through Europe and, and doing all of this stuff. And wow. again, because when he went to jail, she knew nothing about it. And he ended up in prison for like 20 years and, and she came out clean. You do have some good stories there, Peggy. <laughs> um, uh, okay, so... So that's on the criminal. So let's just go back to, so let's say you are writing the report, right? So it's, it's, what was your word? Egregious enough that it's, it's worthy of the report. If you're writing a report, what are the chances that, um, let me ask the question differently. If you're writing a report, how often do you end up going to court and testifying? Well, out of the hundreds of reports that I've written, I've testified about um, two dozen times. Okay, so a written report does not mean a trial and you testifying. No. So walk, walk our listeners through this talent. If their situation is such that everyone determines you need a report, what are the various things that happen from that point on? From that point on, the report is normally used for settlement purposes. So it's just, it's a negotiation tool at that point. Correct. Mm -hmm. And everybody's aware of it. The knowledge is all out there. Okay. So one thing is it's just used as a settlement tool. Another is that the case goes to trial and such a small percentage of any divorce mm -hmm. cases go to trial. Is there anything, is there any other gray area that we haven't touched on that might happen once you write that report? Well, I've had a few cases where when so one spouse tells or when one spouse tells their friends, oh, she, she or he took me to the cleaners, you know, that there was nothing left for me. Oftentimes that could be true, but it's there's a reason why they were taken to the cleaners. And if someone has spent or dissipated more than half of their share of the assets, they might walk away from that marriage with nothing. So it's important to always remember there's another side to each story as well. And that right. my client is only telling me my side of the story. And the opposing counsel has the other side of the story. So the attorneys get together and put it all together. Right. And there's always more than one perspective, which is like the cornerstone of the coaching that we do. <laughs> this has been so helpful and interesting. Is there anything we haven't touched on that you want to add before we wrap up? And I'm going to give you a chance to give your last tips or advice. So just any other information that you want to share before, before we do that wrap up. Okay. Basically, I think that a clients do get a sense of relief, whether there is fraud found or not. And, and in many cases, what their hunches, as I said, realistically don't amount to anything that would make a difference in court. So they, they're relieved to know that. Um, and if they're not relieved, I make sure to make sure they know they're relieved because they're like, oh, I really thought I was going to get one on him. And, you know, people can become people. Some people are very disappointed when they don't find fraud. As I've said before, it might be that their spouse had been telling them for many years that they've been hiding money, et cetera. And then when I come up and say, no, that's actually not true. They really, you know, we're lying to you all those years. They don't want to believe it. 
So I do have I do have one last question for you, and that's time frame. I just realized while you were speaking. So from the time someone hires a forensic until that determination of we're going to write a report or we're not. And I know that it's not cut and dry, but could you give us some span of what that would look like? That's an excellent point. And people always want to rush everything. They, they expect to have answers the next week. Normally, it's a process that takes anywhere from 12 to 18 months minimum. By the time you issue subpoenas and you get all the paperwork and documentation and you write the report and you go, go over it, yeah. Can you just say that again? 12 to 18 months. Okay, I want you to listen to that, those of you listening in. I My jaw dropped. I didn't expect that. I knew it wouldn't be like two weeks. But so it's, it's if there's a lot to comb through, it's a, and you said it, it's like um, quality over quantity. And um, I would imagine effective and efficient over fast. True. Yeah. yeah. So just keep that in mind because there's a lot to get angry about. There's a lot to be frustrated about. The court system moves slowly. If you're going into this forensic accounting space, um, it's not a sprint. It's 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 a it's a year to year and a half process. And if you go in knowing that, expecting and accepting that, uh, you'll be less triggered by it. Agreed. And managing expectations is a big part of having a, this, uh, a good outcome, a good outcome. Beautiful. Yeah. Last tips for our listeners before we find out how they can reach you. Okay. Last tips. Um, it's always easier to get information. Let, let me see how I want to put this. When you think you are going to be looking at a divorce, sometimes it makes sense to gather documents and information ahead of time. Um, and if you can, often people will come to me and have me put it all together for them and see what it looks like before they even meet the attorney, just so that they start to get a handle on the finances in total and if any of their hunches are true or not. Um, so you can always get more information. Once the cat's out of the bag, Often it's a lot harder because things get locked down, passwords get changed, you know, mailboxes change. So sometimes people are clever when they start to look at this before the divorce. And that's a really good point. And so if you're heading toward divorce and the word transparent doesn't sound like it aligns with your soon-to-be ex, then... Um, gathering that information while nobody's expecting that you're gathering it and speaking to uh, a forensic uh, will may, may pour a really rock solid foundation for going forward. And of course, you know, getting some, some legal advice along the way, but I think that sounds great. Peggy, you have a very interesting job. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on and, and sharing with our listeners. I think that um, I love being able to have professionals like you speak directly to my listeners so that they can hear firsthand and then they know and then they know what to look for and they know the steps to take. And you just did such a beautiful job walking us through the world of your forensic accounting and how it impacts our listeners. So I thank you for that. Well, I thank you very much, Karen. It's been a pleasure. 
How can our listeners find you? Well, first of all, uh, where are you located again? I'm located in Illinois. Which is very cold right now. Very cold. And every state, you know, has its own matrimonial laws. So that's always important to remember is that you really want to, again, be local. Right. So so if somebody is local to you and they want to reach out, um, can you share any contact information that you want to share? Well, I can, except that I've retired from trial work. um, And I there's a piece of the forensic accounting that I no longer participate in. I'm now a consulting expert, which is different. Okay. So, um, so what we'll say, is there any, uh, website, um, or resource that you would encourage our listeners to go to, to learn a little bit more? I would encourage your listeners to go to the, the AICPA, American Institute of Certified Public Accountants website, they have their own certification for forensic accountants, and I believe they have a really good handle on uh, forensic accountants by geographic area. Great. So that would be a great place to go to find a local person, and it's the AICPA, and we'll have that in the show notes for you as well, so you can find it there. Peggy, thank you so much for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, really appreciate your time. Thank you very much, Karen. Thanks for joining us on the Journey Beyond Divorce podcast. I hope you found guidance and encouragement to help you along your journey. If you like my podcast, please take a minute to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes. You can also visit us at jbddivorcesupport.com, where our team of coaches support both men and women through our one-on-one coaching group programs, online courses, and free resources. Stay tuned for our next episode, and I'll talk to you soon. At Journey Beyond Divorce, we know that sometimes the most powerful support we can offer is to help you process the storm of emotions you're experiencing and gently challenge the beliefs that are keeping you stuck. The way Karen delivers her program is that she validates the feelings, the emotions, the ups, the downs. She hones in on the specifics that really talk to that particular person when they're going through this crazy emotional time. Let us be a beacon in the midst of this crazy emotional time. Book a free lifeline call with us to help lift the fog and begin practicing new ways of thinking, being, and doing that better support you as you journey through and beyond divorce. Our gift to you is taking that first step with you on your free Rapid Relief Lifeline call, where we help you navigate the emotional and logistical turbulence of separation and divorce. Visit rapidreliefcall.com to book your call.